and realizing that those idols may not always be something seen, they can be heart idols which come to play. What people revere, they resemble either for blessing or for ruin and destruction. Now ponder that. What people revere, they resemble either for blessing or for ruin, destruction. I think back over my life, some of the things that I revered, and it became obvious. As we think about our country, we can see what we revere and we tend to become like that. Definition of an idol, substituting anything, anyone, as a source of satisfaction. Thus God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, and the body of Christ are pushed to the background. Substituting anyone, anything, as a source of satisfaction. Thus God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, the body of Christ are pushed to the background. That happens pretty easily in life, if we're not careful. It would pose a question, what is true of the following individuals? We're going to look at several, we won't have time to consider all. Let's go to Abraham and Sarai in Genesis chapter 16. Now, if we're going to get understand Genesis chapter 16 at all, we have to go back to chapter 12 and verse 1. So we'll start with Genesis 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country. What country was that for those of you who were here yesterday? Okay. Er, where is it, Scott? Back here. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people, or on, yeah, and all peoples in the earth will be blessed through you. God's making a very definite promise. I will make you into a great nation. And we'll stop with that because of what we're considering a little later. Go over to chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 13 first. Chapter 13, when Abram and Lot separate, we know that Lot took the well-watered plains. He ended up in Sodom. Abraham went to the mountains, but God continued to bless him. And after they parted in verse 14 of Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. In chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. Chapter 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Now over to chapter 15 and verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The Lord will not be, or the man, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he counted or credited it to him as righteousness. Now remember, Abram is childless. In Genesis 12, he has promised descendants. In Genesis 13, in Genesis 15. Look at Genesis 16 and verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living... In Canaan, ten years, Sarai took his wife, or Sarai's wife took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Ten years have passed, probably a little over ten years, since the promise had been made to Abram that he would be made into a great nation. The Lord reaffirmed the promise in chapter 13 and in chapter 15. But what happened in chapter 16? Sarai and Abraham, or Abram at this point in time, became impatient. They became discontent with God's promise. And they said, we got to do something. we got to help God along here. And Sarai was the one who had the idea. Abraham or Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Abram and Sarai became discontent. God's promise. I think the text makes it quite clear that God intended to fulfill his promise to Abraham through his wife. And that even though he had a child by Hagar, (coughs) Ishmael is not the promised son. Isaac is the promised son. Take your Bibles and turn it over to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Now, when we get to Exodus chapter 32, please understand that Abram, who became Abraham, had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and the children of Israel are beginning to multiply. And because of a famine in the land, they ended up in Egypt. That is, Israelites ended up in Egypt. They multiplied greatly, and they spent some 400 years in Egypt as slaves. God in his grace and mercy heard their cry and he delivered them from Egypt. 
They crossed the Red Sea. That was a miracle of God. He fed them repeatedly in the desert. The golden calf experience is taking place at Mount Sinai. Moses is up in the mountain responding to God, getting Ten Commandments and related laws. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And notice it's the people coming to Aaron. Aaron responds or answers them in verse 2. Take off your gold earrings and that of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. They're wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now notice in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. There's a festival to the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. But it's through a calf. So the next day in verse 6, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and prescribed fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and get up and indulge in reverie. By the way, at the end of verse 6, and we won't go into it tonight, they sat down to eat and drink. They get drunk. The reverie, they would have been running around naked and had sexual immorality. And all of that in the name of worshiping the Lord. But in worshiping the Lord with a calf, what have they done? They have violated one of the commandments. What was true of Israel? Notice what it says in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they became impatient with God's timing. Hey, Aaron, where is this guy Moses? over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And Numbers chapter 11 is taking place before the children of Israel refused to enter the promised land. That takes place in chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 11 of Numbers and verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Now, what were the Israelites eating? Fried manna for breakfast and boiled manna for supper and roasted manna for lunch. You know, they did that day after day. Don't be too hard on Israel. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get eggs. Tomorrow night, you're going to get eggs. 
Tuesday morning, you're getting eggs. Tuesday lunch, you're getting eggs. Tuesday supper, you're getting eggs. Wednesday morning, you're getting eggs. Wednesday noon, you're getting eggs. And this is going to go on for months. I venture to say after about the third meal, someone's going to say, eggs again? You can fry them, you can scramble them, you can boil them, but I don't care how you do them. They get tiring after a while. And I think the same apparently with manna. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. <coughs> and also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Israel, in this context, was becoming discontent with God's provision. To this day, if I go in a grocery store and go down the aisle where they have the spreadables, I can look at the tuna, I can look at the turkey, I can look at the ham, I can taste it. When we were in college, we were having a very difficult time. They got up in chapel one day and said, some company has donated, I don't know what happened to it, but it was good food, donated these spreadables, and you can pick them up and told us where to pick them up, and they said, so that you're not totally insulted, you have to pay a penny a can. There were 25 cans in each case. We were poor, we didn't have anything to eat, I went and purchased nine cases. Ruthane made that in every conceivable way. <laughs> we were thankful for it, but I'll tell you, we get tired of it. We even had three varieties to choose from. I don't know if God had flavored <laughs> manna or not. The text doesn't say that. I don't think they did, you know, just manna. But they became impatient with God's provision. We won't look at this passage. But in Numbers chapter 16, we find that three leaders became discontent with God's authority. And they grumbled against Moses. And what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed some of them up, including their families. They became discontent with God's authority. Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, 7 through 14, here we find Saul's in the midst of a battle and Samuel is supposed to be coming, and Samuel doesn't come. And what does Saul do? He takes a leadership in offering a sacrifice. He became discontent with God's timing. In Colossians chapter 1 and 2, we find that Paul writes to the believers in Colossae, warning them of an incorrect teaching that is present, because incorrect teaching apparently was saying, you have angels, you have different levels of angels, you have other things that you can do, and then you include Christ in that series of being that lead you to God. And Paul says, no, it's Christ and Christ alone. The Colossians were being tempted to become discontent with Christ alone. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. In the context of chapter or chapters 1 through 3, we find that Paul is very, very clearly 
explain what the believer has in Christ. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul explains how our being in Christ looks in day-by-day living. And in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He's encouraging children to obey parents and to honor father and mother. Rather than becoming discontent with God's authority structure. One of the greatest temptations that children face is to choose not to obey mom and dad and not to honor them. Becoming discontent with mom and dad. Becoming discontent with God's authority structure. What do fathers do? Fathers are tempted to exasperate their children. How does a father exasperate children? By failing to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And when a father doesn't bring his children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, what's he doing? He's becoming discontent with God's authority structure. Sometimes we wonder, how do we train children properly? If you take Ephesians 6, 4 and apply it, along with Colossians 3, I think it's 20, you'll probably do well with your children. In your being faithful, that doesn't mean they'll respond. They have a responsibility to choose to obey and honor. You can't make them obey and honor you. That is their responsibility. But fathers, don't exasperate your children. Bring them up on the nurture or training and instruction of the Lord. We won't turn here, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3 through 13, we find that Paul, in the context of talking about those who are teaching incorrect doctrine, says that some people, teachers now, biblical teachers that are eager for money, have turned away from the truth. And in that context, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Basically saying a contentment with God's provision. But religious teachers sometimes sometimes become discontent. What do they do? They try to pad their pockets. That's been true since the beginning of time. So back to my question. What is true of the individuals that we have touched on. All the individuals or groups were discontent either with God, His authority structure, His pattern, His plan, His provision, His promises, His timing, or Christ or Scripture. Just discontent. That creates a difficulty. Abraham and Sarah were discontent with God's promise. God said, I will give you descendants. And Sarah said, you know, God's too slow. And Abraham agreed with her, God's too slow. So took Hagar. Discontent with God's 
promise and God's timing. None of us have ever been there, have we? Israel, in Exodus 32, became discontent with God's timing. Here's Moses up on the mountain talking to God and Israel saying, no hope for that, Moses. Where's he at? They became discontent with God's timing. In Numbers 11, where they complain about the food, they became discontent with God's provision. God, manna, again? Yes. God, manna, again? Yes. Well, we want something else. They became discontent with God's provision. In Numbers chapter 16, we find that a number of men became discontent with God's authority. Now, Moses isn't the only one that can lead here. God does give authority structures in a nation, in the body of Christ, and in the family. At any time you resist God's authority structure, you're becoming discontent with God. I find it interesting that Peter tells the people to whom he is writing in 1 Peter to submit to those in authority over them, even though those authorities were persecuting them. Pretty hard pill to swallow. God has set up an authority structure within the body of Christ. Sometimes in some churches, those leader in leadership positions may not be leading as well as they should. Let God deal with the leaders. And if there's a need, maybe you need to talk to them. But let God deal with the leaders. You're accountable for how you respond. And the same thing being true in the home. We find that Saul became discontent with God's timing. Samuel's not coming. I want him to lead in worship. So he took the reins himself and led. In Colossians, the Colossians were becoming discon- or, uh, tempted to become discontent with Christ and Christ alone. Children and fathers, we already mentioned, a temptation to be discontent with God's authority structure. You know what dads do sometimes? Let the church train my kids. That's becoming discontent with God's authority structure. Dads are to be involved. Mom is too, but in Ephesians 4, he's talking specifically of fathers. And then believers in Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, apparently becoming discontent, especially those involved in teaching, discontent with God's provision and wanting more green stuff. And in that context, godliness with contentment is great gain. I think a bedrock, bedrock fact as it relates to idols is discontentment with God his authority structure, his pattern plan, his provision, his promises, his timing.
Christ in Scripture is at the root of all idolatry. Discontentment. Just not happy with the way God is doing things. God, I don't like our president. I'm not happy with him. Oh, you're discontent with your president. Yes. Well, then beware because you're moving towards idolatry. Because you're discontent with an authority structure. God, I don't like my parents. They're terrible. Whether they're terrible or not, you're to obey, you're to honor. God, there's no hope for my kids. Let someone else try to get through to them. Move towards idolatry because you're discontent with, as a father, you're responsible for training. You're not responsible for their response. They may not always respond, and they may go their own way, but still teach and train. Think about God's timing. Tremendous temptation to become discontent with God's timing. Israel got in trouble repeatedly because they ran away from God's timing. Didn't want to wait. God, you going to shape this person up or not? In my time, I'll work. But God, I'm going to help you. I don't need your help right now. Just trust me. Fix me, God. Fix this circumstance that I'm in. I just want you to trust me. But God, I want it done now. Just wait. But God, just relax. Trust me. But God, it's been two weeks now. I'm God. You're not. Trust me. God, it's been five years now. I know. Trust me. God, it's been 10 years. I know. Trust me. God, it's been 20 years. I've been talking to you about this and nothing's been happening. Trust me, I'm God. You're not. It was in year 25 that Isaac was born. Tremendous temptation to become impatient with God discontent with him. Sometimes we become discontent with his provision. When Ruth and I were living with one child in a three-room apartment, knowing that a second child was coming along, we began to become discontent with God's provision. So you had to walk in, you walked into her living room, that's where we had Danny, then you went through our bedroom, which was very small, To get into our kitchen, which was very small, if you had more than two people at the table, you pulled the table out, they sat down against the wall, you pushed the table to them, and then the other two people sat down. And then you went back a hallway to get to the bathroom. You could look out the bathroom window, and four feet away from the bathroom window was someone's kitchen window. And, you know, we became somewhat discontent, and 
we really said, Lord, it'd be nice to have the apartment in the next house down. That's six rooms. And again, we went to God and we finally said, okay, we don't think it's a good idea to move. We didn't think God was in it. But we were tempted to become discontent. Discontentment with God, his authority structure, his pattern, his plan, his provision, his promises, his timing, discontentment with Christ alone in Scripture, I think is at the root of all idolatry. You just become discontent with God. Why did Abraham and Sarah end up having a child by Hagar? Because they became discontent with God's promise. Why did Korah and the other men and their families get swallowed up? They became discontent with God and the authority that he had set up. Disobedience is rooted in lack of contentment. I disobey when I'm not content with God alone. Where you have discontentment, then you have idolatry. You can go back to Adam and Eve. They became discontent with God and God alone. Cain became discontent with God's pattern for worship, and he apparently brought something to worship, tried to establish his own worship. After the flood, people became discontent with God, and God divided them with the languages. You can go through Scripture and you'll see at time after time people came, became discontent and they ended up in idolatry. Question. How do we manifest discontentment as a local church? Or how may we be tempted to manifest discontentment as a local church? I'll give you an example where we were tempted. Years ago when we talked about adding to our building, I can't remember if it was the deacons and elders or if it was the building committee that decided to have a guy come to visit to give us some guidance. And his basic reason for coming was to try to recruit us to allow him and his ministry to help us to learn how to raise money but also to borrow money. And then, you know, how to pay it back. And we came, and I talked to him individually, took him up to Red's, and we had supper together, and we talked some. Then we came back, and met, again, I can't remember, it was a building committee or deacons and elders at that time, and we listened to what he had to say, and I can't remember, it was a couple weeks later. We got together again, and most of us said, we just don't feel comfortable with this. It's just, we don't feel comfortable with this borrowing money. And a decision was made somewhere around that time that if we are to ever build, we'll pay in cash. And if we never have any cash, we'll never build. (laughs) But there was a temptation to become discontent. I have have yet to have one individual that hears that we paid as we went to say, you did a stupid thing. You should have borrowed money. I've had repeatedly heard people say, You did a wise thing. But we were tempted to be discontent as a church, as leaders, and say, let's get this process moving a little faster. 
See, we were about 12 or 13 years in the process. Any other response? How might we be tempted to be discontent as a local church? Let me shift gears. How might we as men, husbands, and fathers be tempted to be discontent? And you guys have to respond to that. Well, I guess you ladies could. You might tell us how we are tempted to become discontent. Maybe a better insight than we do, probably. <laughs> Any response, Travis? Good. Anyone else? We can't let the Ruth Ann. not being able to supply as much as maybe the neighbor has become, right, but becoming discontent with the level you may be at. So whatever level you're at, being content with that, and if there's going to be some change, maybe God would be in it, but uh, not becoming discontent, becoming demanding. I think that's a pretty heavy pressure on men, and that's not new. It's been around for a long time. How do we manifest discontentment as women, wives, mothers? Shall we begin, Ruthann says? <laughs> May I give one? I think women are tempted to be discontent with their husbands and how their husbands lead or don't lead. <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? Yeah, he just, uh... I'll stop there. Or with kids, you know, I want my kids to be angels. And they're not. And the child can become the idol, or the husband can become the idol. You say, an idol, how's a husband an idol? You're so discontent with what a jerk he is, you know, that he can, he ends up controlling you. Same thing with kids. My kids aren't responsive to God. And you become so consumed with your kids becoming responsive to God that they end up controlling you rather than God. Any other response? 
you know, wives or women, wives, mother. Ruthann. See, see things that need to be done and we guys just don't get there quick enough. You struggle with God's timing. My husband doesn't get around to taking care of the children and... Ten seconds, five, or you know there's something needs fixed or whatever. Okay, another question. How do we manifest this contentment as children? Maybe I'll rephrase that. How do children manifest this contentment? Please keep in mind, I'm not talking just about children at home. I'm still a child, and I still have my mother who is living. I still have a responsibility to her. I still need to honor her. Any response? That's probably the biggest struggle for children. Elka. Okay, tied in with that, a child becomes discontent because mom and dad, and I'll say particularly dad, is not providing what he is supposed to biblically, and a child may end up in trouble as a result of that, and the child makes a choice. But keep in mind, the child is still responsible to God. That's a hard one to understand and put together sometimes. The father is responsible, the child is responsible. But a child may so crave Dad's love and affection that they end up doing something wrong to try to get it and get into all kinds of trouble. I've seen that repeatedly over and over again. Why did you do such a stupid thing? They don't put it all together, but I wanted Dad's love. I wanted Dad's attention. Or it could be moms, but I'm speaking particularly of dads at this point in time. One other question. How do we manifest discontentment as citizens? We won't go there. (laughs) Don't we become discontent as citizens? Oh, this law isn't changing. Why'd they do this? Why don't they fix this bridge? Why'd we have this, you know, know, we're tempted to be discontent. I, I can't pass one of these up. How do, we come, how do we tend to become discontent as drivers and shoppers? <laughs> now I'm going to meddling, right? <laughs> but stop and think about it. We were in Guatemala years ago, and Bob said, we're going to go to church. <clears throat> so how far is it? About 15 miles. Did it take us two hours to get there? It 
took us two hours to drive 15 miles because there was no paved roads, and you went to dodge this pothole and hit five others over here, and you tried to hit, miss these three, and you hit ten others over here or whatever, you know. And I thought, I said to Bob, you know, this is a really bad road. You see the discontent there starting? I'm not saying it was wrong to make the comment, but we become discontent. Not very easy. Gene. Some do that, not all, but some do, yeah. But just think about life, how we're tempted to become discontent. That's life. We're humans. And God, over and over again, calls us back to Christ, to being content in His promises, His provision, His authority, and so on. But I think the discontentment is at the root of much idolatry. Let's pray together.